0: What's up guys, welcome to Talk Tech. As George RR Martin quotes, a mind needs book has a sword needs a whetstone, if it's to keep its edge. Those words are very much precise because we all know that books are more than just enjoyment. It has a capability to transform one's life. With that said, I Fatima, your today's host, would dive right into the main topic, which is about audiobooks and a bit of book suggestions. When you read a book, you get the stories happening right inside your head, like a movie. But, imagine having someone to read that to you. Oh, that would indeed make a whole new experience. Well, that's what audiobooks are all about. Even most of those who really never have time to read a book, usually have more than enough time to listen to one. Now, that's where the magic lies. You know, just like listening to me right now, if that counts. But yeah. I totally agree that audiobooks are not that great when compared to reading, but giving it a try won't be a pain, at least better than ebooks. Reading or listening both are fine, but getting to know an actual good book is like fixing your missing piece. Published in 2013, has the debut novel by Robert Kilpright, is the book The Cuckoo's Calling, which introduced us readers to Carmen Strike, a London private detective with his own complicated backstory. Well, what's more interesting here is not about the book, instead it's about the author. The publisher around the world assumed Calbright to be an ex-military man, married, with two sons, who wrote the novel based on experience from his own military life. But who knew it was a well-prepared cover by Rowling, who used this as a pseudonym. Yes, you guessed it right, it is indeed J.K. Rowling. Her literary gift is on display in this work crafting of an entertaining story with characters who or interest and an ending that, I will admit, I was surprised by totally. So now, get ready to listen to the audiobook preview of The Kicker's Calling.
1: The buzz in the street was like the humming of flies. Photographers stood massed behind barriers patrolled by police, their long-snouted cameras poised, their breath rising like steam. Snow fell steadily onto hats and shoulders, gloved fingers wiped lenses clear. From time to time there came outbreaks of desultory clicking as the watchers filled the waiting time by snapping the white canvas tent in the middle of the road, the entrance to the tall red brick apartment block behind it, and the balcony on the top floor from which the body had fallen. Behind the tightly packed paparazzi stood white vans with enormous satellite dishes on the roofs, and journalists talking, some in foreign languages, while sound men in headphones hovered. Between recordings, the reporters stamped their feet and warmed their hands on hot beakers of coffee from the teeming café a few streets away. To fill the time, the woolly-hatted cameramen filmed the backs of the photographers, the balcony, the tent concealing the body, then repositioned themselves for wide shots that encompassed the chaos that had exploded inside the sedate and snowy Mayfair street, with its lines of glossy black doors framed by white stone porticoes and flanked by topiary shrubs. The entrance to number 18 was bounded with tape. Police officials, some of them white-clothed forensic experts, could be glimpsed in the hallway beyond. The television stations had already had the news for several hours. Members of the public were crowding at either end of the road, held at bay by more police. Some had come on purpose to look— Others had paused on their way to work. Many held mobile telephones aloft to take pictures before moving on. One young man, not knowing which was the crucial balcony, photographed each of them in turn, even though the middle one was packed with a row of shrubs, three neat leafy orbs, which barely left room for a human being. A group of young girls had brought flowers, and were filmed handing them to the police, who as yet had not decided on a place for them but laid them self-consciously in the back of the police van, aware of camera lenses following their every move. The correspondents sent by 24-hour news channels kept up a steady stream of comment and speculation around the few sensational facts they knew. From her penthouse apartment at around 2 o'clock this morning, police were alerted by the building's security guard. No sign yet that they are moving a body, which has led some to speculate. No word on whether she was alone when she fell. "'Teams have entered the building and will be conducting a thorough search.' A chilly light filled the interior of the tent. Two men were crouching beside the body, ready to move it at last into a body-bag. Her head had bled a little into the snow. The face was crushed and swollen, one eye reduced to a pucker, the other showing as a sliver of dull white between distended lids. When the sequin top she wore glittered in slight changes of light, it gave a disquieting impression of movement, as though she breathed again, or was tensing muscles ready to rise. The snow fell with soft fingertip plunks on the canvas overhead. "'Where's the bloody ambulance?' Detective Inspector Roy Carver's temper was mounting. A paunchy man with the face the colour of corned beef, whose shirts were usually ringed with sweat around the armpits, his short supply of patience had been exhausted hours ago. He had been here nearly as long as the corpse. His feet were so cold that he could no longer feel them, and he was light-headed with hunger. Ambulance is two minutes away, said Detective Sergeant Eric Wardle, unintentionally answering his superior's question as he entered the tent with his mobile pressed to his ear. Just been organising a space for it. Carver grunted. His bad temper was exacerbated by the conviction that Wardle was excited by the presence of the photographers. Boyishly good-looking, with thick, wavy-brown hair now frosted with snow, Wardle had, in Carver's opinion, dawdled on their few forays outside the tent. "'At least that little shift once the body's gone,' said Wardle, still looking out at the photographers. "'They won't go while we're still treating the place like a fucking murder scene,' snapped Carver. Wardle did not answer the unspoken challenge. Carver exploded anyway. "'The poor cow jumped!' There was no one else there. Your so-called witness was coped out of a... It's coming, said Wardle. And to Carver's disgust, he slipped back out of the tent to wait for the ambulance in full sight of the cameras. The story forced news of politics, wars and disasters aside, and every version of it sparkled with pictures of the dead woman's flawless face, her lithe and sculpted body.
0: The next book? That I would highly suggest is Girl Set a Watchman by Harper Lee. The New York Times mentioned this as an important book, perhaps the most important novel on race, to come out of the White South in decades. Set during the middle of the 1950s, this book brings on to life several characters from her Pulitzer Prize winning masterpiece, To Kill a Mockingbird. However, although initially promoted as a sequel by its publisher, this book is now accepted being a first draft of To Kill a Mockingbird with many passages being used again. An instant classic as referred to by many, Cursed a watchman contains the same humour and refined words that is true to Lee style. If you are a fan of To Kill a Mockingbird, the make sure to read them, because this book literally shows has an essential companion, adding depth, context, and new meaning to the American classic. And here we have an excerpt from this book performed by Reese Witherspoon. Have
2: a good time. Since Atlanta, she had looked out the dining car window with a delight almost physical. Over her breakfast coffee, she watched the last of Georgia's hills recede and the red earth appear. And with it, tin roofed houses set in the middle of swept yards. And in the yards, the inevitable verbena grew, surrounded by whitewashed tires. She grinned when she saw her first TV antenna atop an unpainted Negro house. As they multiplied, her joy rose. Jean Louise Finch always made this journey by air, but she decided to go by train, from New York to him Junction, on her fifth annual trip home. For one thing, she had the life scared out of her the last time she was on a plane. The pilot elected to fly through a tornado. For another thing, flying home meant her father rising at three in the morning, driving a hundred miles to meet her in Mobile, and doing a full day's work afterwards. He was 72 now, and this was no longer fair. She was glad she had decided to go by train. Trains had changed since her childhood, and the novelty of the experience amused her. A fat genie of a porter materialized when she pressed a button on a wall. At her bidding, a stainless steel wash basin popped out of another wall, and there was a john one could prop one's feet on. She resolved not to be intimidated by several messages stenciled around her compartment. A roomette, they called it. But when she went to bed the night before, She succeeded in folding herself up into the wall because she had ignored an injunction to pull this lever down over brackets, a situation remedied by the porter, to her embarrassment, as her habit was to sleep only in pajama tops. Luckily, he happened to be patrolling the corridor when the trap snapped shut with her in it. I'll get you out, miss, he called in answer to her poundings from within. No, please, she said. Just tell me how to get out. I can do it with my back turned, he said, and did. When she awoke that morning, the train was switching and chugging in the Atlanta yards. But in obedience to another sign in her compartment, she stayed in bed until College Park flashed by. When she dressed, she put on her makeum clothes, gray slacks, a black sleeveless blouse, white socks, and loafers. Although it was four hours away, she could hear her aunt's sniff of disapproval. When she was starting on her fourth cup of coffee, the Crescent Limited honked like a giant goose at its northbound mate and rumbled across the Chattahoochee into Alabama. The Chattahoochee is wide, flat, and muddy. It was low today. A yellow sandbar had reduced its flow to a trickle. Perhaps it sings in the wintertime, she thought. I do not remember a line of that poem piping down the valley's wild? No. Did he write to a waterfowl? Or was it a waterfall? If you only read the books that everyone
0: else is reading, you can only think what everyone else is thinking, says Haruki Murakami. Now don't ask me who's that, unless you're someone who just started exploring. You might have a long way to go, but it's never too late to start reading or listening. And now that you got a taste of audiobooks, Try listening to an actual one if you did enjoy this. Oh, time is running. I would love to go on exciting you guys with some excellent pieces. I mean, there's a whole lot of world to suggest and explore together. But next time. Until then, signing off is your host, Fatima. Stay tuned.